Well, good morning, Southside Church. How y'all doing? Good. Good. Um, today we are going to be in Philippians chapter one, verses twenty-seven through thirty. Um, it is a great day to be in the house of the Lord with the people of the Lord. So I am very excited. That's Philippians chapter one, um, verses twenty-seven through thirty. We're going to be looking at four verses this morning. And if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're in Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. And the Apostle Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Commander of the heavens and commander of our hearts, Father, we ask that you would be with us during this time, that you would stir your spirit within us, that we may know that you are present here working among your children. Father, we pray that you would wash us anew through your word. Father, that you would come here and make yourself known in this place and make yourself known among these people. Father, all praise and glory this morning to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Has there been a time in your life where you found it just very difficult to just put one foot in front of the other? That you were just so tired, if you were to just fall to the ground, you would have no problem sleeping. Yet your responsibilities to your family or your responsibilities to others just kept you going. You had to do what you had to do. Maybe it was waking up um, to feed a young child when you were just exhausted, or maybe it was a late night phone call for a family emergency, or something just unexpected um, caused you to change your plans for the day or your plans for the entire week. Well, in an exceptional way, this is the life of a man named B.B. Warfield. You see, Warfield was a, he was an aspiring scholar and theologian, and he was considered one of the great scholars of the 20th century. He was one of uh, Princeton's greatest professors. And he got married at age 25 to his wife, Annie. And as they were on a honeymoon hiking in Germany, uh, a storm overtook them and she was struck by lightning and permanently paralyzed. And for the next 39 years, Warfield had to care for his wife and rarely could he leave his home for more than two hours at a time. All of his talents 
and all of his potential was directed away from Princeton, away from scholarship, and to his wife. He had to learn to wait, to put down his book so he could pick up his wife, because a greater responsibility demanded his attention. And this is kind of uh, similar to what's going on at the church at Philippi. You see, the church is facing a host of problems. They're spending time doing this and spending time doing that, and the Apostle Paul has to remind them that they have a greater responsibility, that something greater demands their attention. You see, the driving passion of the Apostle Paul was the advancement of the gospel. He lives and breathes this gospel message. He's in chains and he preaches the gospel. He's arrested and he's converting the imperial guard. But there's a problem at the church at Philippi. There's a threat to the gospel and he has to deal with it. You see, the problem or the proclamation of the gospel was at risk. You see, God's outpost in Philippi was starting to fall. The pillars of the church were beginning to slip, and it had to be dealt with. And the threat was very real, and it was the worst kind of threat because it not only came from outside the church, but the threat was coming from inside the church as well. And although this threat to the gospel existed 2,000 years ago, I'm reluctant to say that it is present in many American churches today. And this threat is church disunity. And we're not just talking about any church disunity. We're talking not merely about togetherness. We're not talking merely about agreement or harmony. We are talking about unity around the gospel. We're talking about a church united to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, a church committed to gospel living and gospel sharing. We're talking about a church that is called to be united under the banner of the living Christ. And the moment a church begins to center itself on something other than the gospel is the moment it ceases to be a church and it becomes a club. And so what's at stake at Philippi is the gospel itself. What is at stake is the life of the church. And so this message from the Apostle Paul could not be more important. But if we're going to understand exactly what's happening, if we're going to exactly understand you know, the solution that Paul's going to give, we have to kind of understand what is going on exactly at the church. You see, the church is facing persecution there are people in the city, uh, most likely Roman officials, who are bullying church members as, uh, because they're a part of the way that they're opposing and their social marginalization. And as they go out in the cities, they are being persecuted. The, the, the people in the city are striking fear in the church and their jobs and their businesses are at risk. Um, many commentators say they're being physically abused for being called um, a part of this movement called Christianity. And as a result, the church is fighting. There is this unity. Chapter 2 says that many members have selfish ambitions and are, and are trying to take control. There are members who are motivated by some uh, self-interest to have the easiest tasks or to just have the, the easiest things to do in the church. There is grumbling and arguing, chapter 2 says, about how, how best to run the church, how best to respond to the opposition of the city. And chapter 4 talks about two leading women who are creating factions in the church. And so at Philippi, the perfect storm is brewing. There's a life-threatening opposition in the church. The church is suffering, and they don't know how to understand their suffering. And as a result, they're discarding the only thing that has ever brought them together, and that's the gospel. 
And so the Apostle Paul needs to remind them that there is a greater responsibility, that something larger demands their attention. They're going to have to learn to put down their desires, to put away their needs because something more worthy demands their attention. They must learn to put down their desires and pick up their crosses. And so what what does Paul do? What does he tell a church like this? What would he tell the churches in America and the church here at Southside? And our answer comes in verse 27. So if you would uh, pick up your Bibles with me, we're going to read verses 27 again. And this is the solution that Paul gives to a suffering church. He says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The solution to a divided and suffering church is to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice that verse 27 starts with a very important word. It starts with the word only. There's but one solution to church problems. There's one thing that the church must be marked by. There's one thing that God desires most in his church. There's one overarching commitment, one cosmic goal in the Christian life, and that is that we would live a life worthy of Christ, live a life worthy of the gospel of our Savior. And so if you were going to center your life around any Bible verse, it really doesn't get much better than this one. There is no better rule for the Christian life. This is the call of every Christian, every man, woman, and child here. If anyone anyone were to ask you why you exist, what makes you tick, you should quote this verse, that I live to be found worthy of the one who died for me. There is no better advice for a church than to remind them of why they exist. And note what the apostle doesn't say. He doesn't give the church a list of rules. He doesn't give them a list of commandments. No, better than rules, better than commandments, better than a pat on the back, he gives them the Savior. He puts Jesus before their eyes, and he says, you live for him. You exist for him. He is the only way. He is the only truth and the life. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if there is any hope for the church, it is found in the person of Jesus Christ and his message of redemption. You see, the church is supposed to be a community that lives in such a way that it puts its Savior on display. It shows the value of its king. The church is to display the worthiness of Christ. And we do this by dispensing with our love for the world. Living a life that displays our allegiance to God and not man. Lives that make people think that we're crazy. Lives that make people think that we don't belong to this world, that we belong to another city, a heavenly city. We have citizenship in another land, that we belong to a different kingdom. Paul says it this way, for the Christian to live is Christ. There is no other way of life for the Christian. So the solution to a divided church, the solution to a suffering church is to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so how does a church do this? How do we live in this way? And the Apostle Paul is going to give us three answers. And these three answers are going to be what we're going to be studying this morning. So how do we live a life worthy of the gospel? First, we must stand firm in the gospel. We must stand firm in the gospel. Second, a church must strive for the gospel. 
And third, a church must not fear the consequences of the gospel. So we're going to be looking at verse 27 again for our first point. Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. You see, whether the Apostle Paul was going to be able to leave prison or not, the command still stands that he wants the church to stand firm. And the Greek word here conveys the idea of a soldier holding the line. He's holding his ground against opposition. Um, and the best example I could think while I was studying is um, the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, if you're familiar with it. You see, at the end of uh, World War II, Hitler was losing a lot of ground, and the only way that he was going to be able uh, to make any more ground was to divide the, United, or the American, the British, and the French forces in Belgium. You see, if he could drive a wedge through that united front, then he could gain the upper hand. But the operation that he wanted to do was daring, and complete secrecy was required. See, Hitler required all his generals to agree to total loyalty and confidentiality, or else they would be killed. The commanders of the armies weren't even allowed to be told of the operation until 24 hours before moving out. There was to be no correspondence, there was no radio traffic, as the German forces moved through the Ardennes forest where the Allied forces were. And the Allied forces were caught completely off guard and the German forces swept through. The American forces took up refuge in a small town called Bastogne. It was a strategic town that if the Germans were to take it, the war would have probably ended much differently. And to make the matters worse, Americans in Bastogne were running out of food and ammunition. A snowstorm had, a snowstorm had just come through and it, it totally froze the ground and snow covered everything. And eventually the Germans surrounded the city. Um, American reinforcements led by General Patton were unable to get to the city in time. And at one point, the Germans thought that the, they had the Americans and so they sent a messenger um, demanding that they surrender but when General Anthony McAuliffe was given the paper to surrender, um, he didn't say, I surrender. He didn't sign his name. He wrote one word, one syllable, and it was just nuts across the paper. That's what he wrote. Despite the odds being stacked against them, despite all conventional logic, they refused to surrender. They refused to surrender not because of the army that laid before them, but the brothers and sisters that were behind them. And they held up for weeks, and the weather finally broke. Planes were able to, to fly again, delivering resupplies and bombing German forces. And American forces finally arrived, and the soldiers that had been walled up in this small town called Bastogne um, were happy because they thought they were being relieved and were going home. But General Patton said to them, we need you. He said, we need you to stay and, and hold the line. And so they fought, and they stood firm, and, and eventually they gained the upper hand and pushed the German forces back. A few hundred soldiers changed the outcome of the entire war because they stood firm and held their ground. And the Apostle Paul reminds us today that we, the church, is at a war a war that requires us to stand firm and hold the line. And for a church to stand firm, we must be like the soldiers in Bastogne. We must be committed 
to the task of fighting. You see, when God, he calls a person, when he calls a Christian, he calls the whole Christian. The gospel of Christ demands everything that we have. We are called to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our mind, soul, and strength. If one part doesn't belong to them, then we have a divided loyalty. And many of us, we want God, but we also want our sin as well. We allow God to, to renovate many of the rooms in our heart, but there are, are just this one room that we won't allow him in. But Jesus says no one, no one can have two masters. You can't serve both God and man. We cannot have one foot in the temple of God and one foot in the temple of Satan. And there are some of us here that do feel like we're committed to the gospel. We, we feel that we are committed to the church. And, and the best test for knowing whether we are committed or not. The best question that we could ask ourselves is what you're willing to give for God. You see, we all agree that our word is only as good as our actions. And your commitment to God is only as good as what you're willing to give up for him, what you're willing to do to follow him at any cost. You see, if we sit here today and say that we're committed to God while others do the work, while others lead our families, while others share the gospel, while others do mercy ministry, and we are more concerned about us, we're more concerned about our church, then we're probably not committed to God, but a false idea of God. If we think God demands only belief but not action, if we think that we can have Christ without his church, if we think we can have God but not be a part of the mission of God to save nations, then we, church, do not know the God of the Bible. We cannot have God without the cost of following God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, when Christ calls a man, when he calls a woman, he bids them to come and die. Therefore, to be in the kingdom of God, we have no choice but to lose our lives. No choice but to lose our lives. We cannot have God without the cost. Therefore, to be in the kingdom, there's a price. There's a price and there's a condition. To have God as our king, to have him as our refuge, to have him as our strength. The condition is not money. The condition is not power. He doesn't look for intelligence. The condition is that you would prefer God above everything else in this world. Now, standing firm in our verse is not the whole command. You see, the apostle Paul says that we must be a church that stands firm in one spirit. You see, our source of power comes from the Spirit of God. We can't do anything without his power. There is no unity in this church. There's no hope in this church. There's nothing to look forward to if it is not brought about by God's Spirit. And so what does it look like for a church to stand firm then? If Jason, if you were gonna say, well, what do we do? You're talking about all this stuff, but what does it practically look like? And I have two answers to that. First, the church must promote the gospel above all things. The church must promote the gospel above all things. And why is that? Why does church unity depend upon the gospel? You see, if we're, not, if we're not a church that bleeds the gospel of Jesus, then there's no reason for any of us to be sitting here today. If there is no gospel in this church, then there's no church here. There's one thing in this church that binds every single one of us together, and it's not that we're Americans. It's not that we have the same political affiliation. It is not that we all live in Brandon, but it is because somebody has died for you and somebody has died for me. 
the moment that this church begins to do anything but promote the gospel of Jesus Christ is the moment that our foot begins to slip. And the second thing a church does to stand firm is it gives its life for one another. It gives its life for one another. That we pour out our lives in service to one another. That your needs become my priority and my needs become your priority. It's to consider others more highly than yourselves. Jesus said it this way, a new commandment I give you, as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Everyone, I want you to look around. Look to the left, look to the right, look behind you, look at your brothers and sisters. These are the ones that our Savior died for, and he commands us, he commands us to love one another. If you want Jesus to be known in this world, it starts with us loving one another. We love each other by considering each other more highly and more important than ourselves. We love each other by doing the hard task of forgiving each other and confessing our sins to God. You see, the greatest act of love, Jesus says, is to lay down our lives in the service to one another. And he means this both metaphorically in our day to day And he means this literally in our death. A church worthy of the gospel is a church that stands firm by promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ and giving our lives in service for one another. And this leads us to our second point. A church worthy of the gospel must strive for the gospel. We're going to read verse 27 again. Verse 27 reads this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now we're gonna read that verse like five more times. And so if anybody asks you what service was about, you just have to say at a minimum, it's about living a worthy life. And then anything else that I say is just cherries on top of the Sunday. that's it. So if you remember that one thing, then I've accomplished my goal. I'm gonna say that like 10 more times at least. So only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you are absent, I may hear that you are standing firm with one spirit, which is point one, and point two, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And here, Paul continues our military imagery and gives us an expression of side by side um, striving. Our text says that we strive with one mind. Now, this Greek word is the same for like striving side by side with one soul or one psyche. It's kind of an interesting image. It portrays the church as like a a well-trained unit that's fighting side by side as as one entity, right? That is, in our our striving, we are fighting as separate individuals, but we, we fight in such a way that it looks as if we're one individual fighting. And so Paul's telling the church, he's like, stop fighting, against one another. Stop fighting for prestige. Stop fighting for power and influence. Stop fighting for the sake of fighting. Just fight as one. And although this is not exactly uh, the perfect illustration, but the the infantry formation back in in the Roman um, Empire time, the phalanx formation, and I think many of you have probably seen this in the movies or in pictures, um, but it's this formation. It was a rectangular mass of soldiers, and they would have 
they were like in a very, they were very close to each other and, you know, they all had shields and the guys on the flanks, you know, had their shields to the side. Some had them above to protect them from arrows and they would move as, as one unit into battle. And that's kind of the picture of what we're getting at. And the formation um, that was developed, it was very long ago, um, it was very effective in battle, but it also had some um, unique weaknesses. For example, um, if the soldiers on the front line, if they weren't like incredibly courageous, then if there was a, a strong opposing force um, and they kind of buckled, right, um, it would leave the entire formation um, vulnerable. Also, uh, coordination was uh, of vast importance. Everybody had to know their role. Everybody had to know what position they played in the formation because if, if anything happened, if, if somebody took a misstep or didn't know exactly what was going on, then the whole formation would be left open. And this is um, not much different than today. You see, we need to learn how to strive for the faith of the gospel as a church. We need to know that our giftings, our strengths, so that we can operate as one unit. Not everyone is going out and being on the front. Not everyone's going to see the same action. And we have to be okay with that. See, we, we need the warriors in the church, right? We need, we need the, the prayer warrior. We need people who can pray. We, we need the evangelists. We, we need the pastors. We need those who can preach. We need warriors. We need support elements. And we need scouts. We need everybody working together as one body, as one unit. But the question is, what exactly are we striving for, right? It's good to know that we need to be together, but what exactly are we fighting against? What are we fighting for? What banner do we fight under? Our verse says that we strive for the faith of the gospel. And that's kind of a weird way to say it. Um, and the English rendering in our English Bible is not super clear about that. Um, but the, most scholars render that uh, Greek phrase there as something like as for the benefit or, or the progress of the faith of the gospel. You see, striving here uh, is about gospel proclamation. The only other time this Greek word is used is in Philippians chapter 4, and when Paul talks about two women who were striving side by side with him for the sake of gospel proclamation. So it's a safe bet that striving means proclamation of the gospel. In other words, to strive is to expand God's kingdom. And, and striving means that we're just not in a, like a defensive position, but that we're, we're moving forward in opposition. It's kind of like a, a rhythm of attack and defense. It's, it's hold the line while you, while you flank the enemy. And you see, if the, the opponents aren't like just showing up to, to the church at Philippi, they're not going to the house churches and, and persecuting the, the church at the house, right? The, the gospel is going out into the city and the gospel is facing people's sins. The gospel is facing uh, people's jobs and the gospel is going out and that's where they're being persecuted. It's not here on Sunday. It's through the week that the church is being persecuted. So what is Paul saying? when he means that we must strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. He means that we need to have our shields in hand for the advancement of the gospel. And we do that as a disciplined army with the word of God in our hands, with, right, with the, the love of Christ in our hearts and the Spirit's power coursing through our veins. And here, here's the thing, here's the opposite. The implication of, of that is if this is the worthy life, right? If Paul says the worthy life of the church is striving for the proclamation of the gospel, then by implication, we as a church must renounce any other kind of church life. Any life of the church that is not sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ, any church life that spends more time looking inwardly than outwardly, any church life that is focused on something more than the expansion of God's kingdom is not living a life worthy 
of its Savior. If it is true that there is no other name given to men by which we must be saved, if it is true that Jesus Christ is the only hope for the world, then we cannot afford to waste time. If there is no greater mission given to humankind than what God gives, then we must be about that mission. As I was upstairs in uh, one of the rooms where I do my writing and studying, um, there, one of uh, HOA employees for our community kind of parked in front of our house. Um, and I, I've shared the gospel with him a couple times, invited him to our gospel community several times. And he parked right in front of the house. I don't think he knew that we particularly lived there. And he probably did it by mistake. I knew it wasn't by mistake. And so I'm writing these words about, you know, advancing the gospel and all these things. And I'm like, I don't want to go down there and talk with him. It's like, he's sitting right there, but I'm kind of busy. And, you know, a few minutes go by, and I'm like, dang it. It's like, uh, it's like it doesn't get any easier than this, God. Um, and so I grab some glasses and pretend, sunglasses, and pretend like I'm going to go put them in my car so I have an excuse to go outside of my house, right? And so I, I walk up um, to his passenger window, and I'm standing, and I wave at him. And I couldn't really see. His windows were tinted, so I couldn't see if he waved back. And I stand there for like 10 seconds, and he doesn't roll down the window. And I was like, this is awkward. I was like, but I didn't know, is it, is it more awkward that I walk away now or is it more awkward that I stay? And I didn't know what to do, but I stayed there. And eventually he rolled down his window. And then we had this great conversation about God and, and he said some things like, oh, I have my own personal relationship or, or this and that. And we talked about that uh, for a while. But then we just, and I, I think he's gonna come to our gospel community, but it was just a matter of being faithful in those small things. And that's kind of where evangelism starts, is it not? It starts with our neighbors. It starts with our families. It starts with the mail carrier, having intentional conversations with those we just meet in the store places and in the city. It's about just being faithful in the small things that God gives us. You see, church, we're not gonna be judged um, by our evangelistic efforts um, compared to like Billy Graham or D.L. Moody, but we, we will be measured by what God has placed in front of us. And, and this was just a great reminder for me that God literally put somebody in front of my house. And at first I was disobedient, but I was just faithful in the small things. And you know what, God, I think God did something there. And that's where gospel living and gospel sharing begins, church. And you know what? Let's strive together for the gospel like that. Why don't we hold each other up in those things? Let's, let's share our awkward stories about evangelism and encourage one another. And if you need help learning how to, how to share your faith or how to have these conversations, talk to your gospel community leaders. Talk to the elders of the church. You know, that's, that's why they're there for. Now we're gonna move to our last point for the morning. This is going by really quick, by the way. Maybe I'm talking too fast or maybe I'm just nervous, I don't know. I'm talking too fast? Okay. That's what rehearsal does, huh? So we're gonna, I'm gonna talk real slow now. We're gonna uh, go over our last point for the evening or for the morning. Um, And the last point is a church that is worthy of the gospel um, is a church that doesn't fear the consequences of the gospel. A church that is worthy of the gospel does not fear the consequences of the gospel. And we're going to read all of our verses again, verses 27 through 30. If you would look at your Bibles with me, verse 27 begins like this. You might have heard it before. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, 
I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Verse 28 begins by stating that we should not be frightened by our opponents. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on in the Greek in this chapter, and I usually don't even talk about the Greek text very much. But this word for frightened in the Greek is actually only used once in the New Testament. And it is used in other literature during that time to talk about um, war horses that were frightened um, in battle. And so that's the idea. You see, their opponents are literally trying, trying to strike fear into the hearts of the church. They're literally trying to throw the church into a panic. And some commentators said it probably included uh, psychological suffering, um, social marginalization, intimidation, imprisonment, and physical torment. Stuff we really don't deal with, right, in the American church very much. But uh, we would be mistaken if we thought this was just a message of perseverance, The Apostle Paul isn't just telling the church just to hold on and endure suffering. He's not telling them that this is just a season and just wait because there's going to be peace. He's actually saying the exact opposite. He's saying that we can't, as a church, we cannot fear like like startled horses that go into paralysis and refuse to go into war. You see, we cannot allow intimidation to put us off the mission In other words, there is no Christian path that retreats from the gospel advancing. The only direction that the gospel moves is forward. And far from being an encouragement to endure, this is a message to push ahead, a message to push into enemy territory. And when a church lives like this, verse 28 says it is a clear sign of their destruction but a sign of our salvation. You see, when the church stands firm, when it strives side by side, when it is not frightened like war horses, this acts as a sign to our enemies of their destruction, but for the children of God, it's a sign of our salvation. That is, gospel advancing perseverance is a sign of salvation. I'm gonna say that again. Gospel advancing perseverance is a sign of salvation. And now we come to the four most important words in verse 28. And I'm wondering if somebody could tell me what those four words are. If you have an ESV, if you have another translation, it might not work that way. Anybody last four words in verse 28? In that from God. In that from God. In other words, your suffering your intimidation, your marginalization, your physical abuse is all guided by and under the control of God's mighty hand. Brothers and sisters, the trials of this life never come without the grace of God. They never come without an extra measure of the Spirit's power. They never come apart without the gentle and sovereign hand of our Father. And these four words teach us that the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ does not rest in human striving alone, but with God striving through us, and therefore it cannot 
fail and it will not fail. God's word will accomplish everything that it sets out to do. And the Apostle Paul continues to tell us why in verse 29. Now we have to read this verse very carefully because it says a lot. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Two things have been granted to all Christians. First, it is that we have been granted to believe in Christ. And second, it has been granted that we suffer for Christ. And the Greek word here is also very interesting because the word here that we translate as granted means to give graciously. It also means to give as a gift. It communicates the idea of a privilege that Christians have been given. And we're all ready to confess that it's a privilege to believe in God. I mean, that's the greatest privilege on earth, but how many of us readily say that it is a privilege to suffer for God? That it is a gift to suffer for God. How can the Apostle Paul say that suffering is a privilege? And here's the answer. Suffering shows our union with God. Suffering shows us that we are united to God. And I'm going to explain that now. You see, when you commit your life to Christ, you, you are united to Christ. That means that his death becomes our death. His resurrection is now our resurrection. His father is now our father. His kingdom is now our kingdom. But it also means, and get this, that his story becomes your story. The story that Jesus must suffer before he rises from the dead is now our story. In our life as Christians, when we are obedient, it retells the story of Jesus. We must suffer before rising like Christ. Our life our life takes the shape of a divine drama where the life of Christ is retold over and over again. It is a new performance of the original drama that extends the life of Christ to those who do not know him yet. That through our lives, in a real sense, that our lives are re-offering or re-extending to the world our Savior. And in a very real way, we, our lives inhabit this gospel story. You see, our union to Christ is a union to suffering. And no suffering has come upon us that has not first come upon the Savior. Suffering is something in which we have a share. Far from being a sign of abandonment from God, it is a sign of participation with God. And as far as we are caught up into this retelling of Jesus' story, we are actually caught up into the deepest fellowship that we can have with God. One old commentator put it this way, that God keeps his best wine in the cellar of suffering. We experience God most deeply, more preciously, more sweetly, when we lay down our lives just as Christ laid down his life. Therefore, Paul's advice for a suffering church is to live a life worthy of the gospel, to understand suffering as a gift, that we belong to Christ. It is a sign that we are in the family. 
And this applies to all suffering in the path of obedience, whether this is sickness, whether this is death, whether this is hardship in relationships. But there's also a suffering that we have to talk about that's a suffering for the sake of the gospel. You see, in particular, our verse is talking about suffering for the sake of gospel advancement. And suffering on behalf of the gospel is not something we really deal with in America. This type of suffering is all throughout the New Testament, but it's kind of awkwardly absent in many American churches. You know, if Paul says in our text that it's a gift to suffer, if the book of Romans says that that we are heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. If 1 Corinthians says that we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, if Peter says that think it not strange when the fiery trial comes upon you, if Colossians says that my suffering is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, then where is gospel suffering in the American church? Now, I don't know exactly what the answer is, but I have a guess. You see, the church in Philippi is suffering not because they're peacefully meeting in their churches, but because the church is carrying out the gospel and the gospel's encountering sin. The church is suffering in China right now because China knows that Christians have one king and one allegiance and it is a threat to the Communist Party to be a Christian. The church is suffering in India right now because it's said to be a threat to national unity. The church is suffering in Africa right now because it is a threat to other African religions. You see, in all these cases, Christianity poses a threat. A threat to governments, a threat to other religions, and a threat to people's sins and their wicked ways of life. See, Europe and America used to be pillars of Christianity But now God is moving stronger and faster in South America. He's moving in Asia. He's moving in hard places like China and the Middle East. And talking about the movement away, and talking about the movement of Christianity away from America and Europe, there's a a famous um, scholar of history, and this is what he says about it. If you want to visualize the average Christian today, you should not visualize a white female in Europe Rather, the average Christian looks like a woman in a village in Nigeria. That's what the average Christian looks like today. He said, soon the phrase, and this is a quote, a white Christian may sound like a curious oxymoron, like a Swedish Buddhist. That's what he says about the movement of Christianity away from the West. You see, the... I'll say this. One commentator said it this way. He said, the church used to be a lifeboat that was rescuing the perishing, and now it has become a cruise ship recruiting and promising. See, in many ways, the American church has become a sword without an edge. It has become a one-string violin tuned to sing the songs of the good old days. We have refused the prosperity gospel in America, but we still want this easy believism. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. He calls it cheap grace. That's what we want. We want cheap grace. And he says, quote, it is the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without ever asking questions and without ever fixing limits. It is grace without a price, grace without cost. It seems as though the church in the West has set aside her royal crown and hung up her robes of grace. But church, we must be reminded of the gospel 
of the Bible. We must come to know that the promised seed is the persecuted seed, that the children of God must suffer before they reign, that the cross always comes before the crown, that we must, Jesus said, lose our lives before we gain them. Therefore, church, let us pick up our crosses. Let us continue the mission that has been set before us. Let us be a church united by the gospel of Christ, sold out for the passion of our Savior, standing firm and moving forward as we strive for the advancement of the gospel, not fearing the consequences of what it costs. And if we commit to this, let's see what God can do in us. Let's see what God can do in our neighborhoods. Let's see what he can do in our city. And what would it look like? What would it look like if he starts with you and me? What would it look like if it begins here at Southside Church? Let's pray. I don't know what that was. Let's pray.